0: JD Power ranks Sleep Number number 1 in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Good evening everyone. I'm Allison Camarata. Welcome to CNN tonight. One of former President Trump's lawyers has to answer questions and turn over his notes to a grand jury tomorrow relating to those classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago. Meanwhile, we're waiting for any next steps in the investigation into those hush money payments to Stormy Daniels. The House Judiciary Committee wants to investigate the DA in that case, Alvin Bragg, but Bragg says that would violate New York law. Also, why was this grieving father pinned... To the ground by Capitol Police today. You're about to see Parkland parent Manuel Oliver, whose son Joaquin was shot to death in his high school. Manuel and Patricia Oliver are here tonight to explain what happened. And we have more Gwyneth Paltrow news. She's expected to take the stand tomorrow in the trial about her skiing accident. We'll tell you about the piece of missing evidence revealed in court today. Okay, but let's start with today's developments into the various Trump investigations. Let's bring in national security expert, Juliette Kayam, Rolling Stone writer slash rabbi, Jay Michelson, dispatch editor-in-chief and dog lover, Jonah Goldberg, and legal analyst, Joey Jackson. Also joining us remotely is John Sale, who turned down an offer to join Donald Trump's legal team. Uh, John, thank you very much for being with us remotely tonight. Really looking forward to having you here. Do you regret your decision not to take on Trump as a legal client tonight?
2: Uh, No, I have absolutely no regrets, uh, but I'm happy to be with you tonight, Alice. Happy to
1: have you. So you say that you sense legally the walls closing in uh, around Donald Trump. How so?
2: Well, there are four different investigations, uh, and briefly as to each one of them, I think the most serious one right now is, the most serious threat is the Mar-a-Lago, the document, uh, classified document case. And with Evan Corcoran, he he has the ability either to severely incriminate the former president, or he could also exonerate him, because what we don't know is we don't know what he's going to say. But if he does say that he unknowingly acted at the former president's behest and misled the grand jury and did not tell the truth, uh, that could be a 1,001 violation or obstruction violation. So, but we're not going to know because it's all under seal in a sealed proceeding. So stay tuned in terms of that one. But let me say while I have an opportunity, I, I saw the barricades in front of the uh, Manhattan District Attorney's office, yeah, and I worked in the U.S. Attorney's office right near there, and that was really disturbing. Obviously, it's necessary, but uh, anybody through social media posts or otherwise who is expressing the possibility of violence, we all have to sing out and say that is totally unacceptable. I think our Constitution's going to work; it's worked since 1788, and I think it's going to work now. But. Uh, regarding the uh, New York County District Attorney investigation. Well, hold on, before we get there, let me just
1: ask, I just want to ask you, John, about that, what you were just saying about the barricades around the DA's office. Do you think that former President Trump has implied that violence would be acceptable when he says take back our country?
2: Well, I can't get into his head, but I'm concerned that people could interpret something Mm -hmm. that way. And that's something which, I mean, we heard there was a bomb threat today, yesterday, And the security is necessary, but uh, we just have to all stand up for whether we agree or disagree uh, with what's going on. We cannot have violence. We can't have mob rule.
1: Okay, John, let me pause there and just um, touch on with my panel a few of the things that you brought up. So the Evan Corcoran testimony, Joey... Tomorrow in front of the grand jury. John's right. We don't know what he's going to say, but we do know what he's going to be asked. So, our reporting has that they want to focus in on three things the May 2022 subpoena and the subsequent search for classified documents at Mar a Lago. The next month, June 2022, document that Evan Corcoran um, crafted claiming that a diligent search had been conducted. And then that same month, a call between Donald Trump and Evan Corcoran that took place the same day that the Trump Organization was subpoenaed for Mar-a-Lago surveillance footage. So those are the three things they want to dive into. Tell us the significance.
3: Uh, Well, one significance beyond the obvious, which is that you cannot have classified documents, whether you're the president or not, right, you can't magically or in your mind declassify them, is the issue of obstruction of justice. And so if you make a representation that everything has been transmitted and turned over and you say there's nothing else to see here and then, oh, well, wait a second, there's plenty else to see and there's plenty else that they find, that's a problem. Uh, if you didn't know, look, it's very important, Allison, and that's a great question, because in law, there's a there's sort of this mindset issue. It's called mens rea, not to get too technical, but in order to commit a crime, you have to have the mental state, and so you have to act knowingly or intentionally to do something. It's another man- way to act negligently or recklessly, et cetera, and so I think that's significant, but when you say, what if you didn't know, if who didn't know, if the attorney didn't know, or if Donald Trump didn't know, uh, you know, we're only as good as lawyers at as what our attorneys, excuse me, what our clients advise us as lawyers as to what the facts are. And sometimes a lawyer can be misled. And so I think it's going to be critical as to the president's state of mind and whether he intentionally made misrepresentations to his lawyer. And that's going to be critical and that'll be met, meted out with the other evidence.
1: Um, Juliette, what about what John was bringing up in terms of the security oh, yeah. concerns uh, surrounding all of these possible um, legal developments? Right. So there's there's two, two ways that I've been looking at it. So first, clearly
4: the threat environment is increased. We know what Trump means when he says things like "take America back" or "fight for me." Or protest. Uh, it's interpreted by some small a percentage. So not all of his supporters are violent. Small, some small percentage of his of his supporters as a justification for violence you're always going to be worried about that group uh they're online they're they're doing things to make the threat environment increase and that's why you're seeing that whatever happens trump is unbelievably good at just driving activity like there could be you know we've been waiting a week and everyone is now focused on the security of 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 these facilities there and and the people who are, are bringing the case against him but what's been amazing to me as someone who sort of followed violent extremism before January 6th and then after in terms of how Trump was able to incite without actually directing it is, uh, is the, his ability to deliver now has changed significantly, whether it's because of his own isolation from the major social media platforms, the arrest of a couple hundred people, the disruption of terror groups like the Oath Keepers, uh, a, a, an attempt by the January 6th committee to give some off-ramps to, the, to to Republicans who don't want to be part of this anymore. So you're even now seeing whatever the Republicans are saying in terms of this is a witch hunt against Trump. They are also all saying, do not protest. They know, that's, I don't know, I, I know they're doing the polling. And the polling says the American public does, does not want to go back to that mm-hmm. and is actually uh, uh, um, not, wants to move on, for, at best yeah. wants to move on from January
5: 6th. Okay. There's something here also, you know, I'm curious, kind of a, trying to get into Trump's mind yeah. is always a bad idea. <laughs> there's, there's this incredible gross negligence. Right. Where sometimes there's a term called stochastic terrorism, where you don't say, take up a gun and do all these things. But you know that some of your followers will interpret your ambiguous words in just such a way. And we've seen this again and again and again. And it is it does feel sometimes as though the walls are closing in. And at the same time, there's also this profound disrespect for the rule of law.
1: Um, Jonah, Mm -hmm. one of the things that's happening with Alvin Bragg, so the Manhattan D.A., that he's gotten a letter from the House Judiciary. Um, So Chairman Jim Jordan basically wants to do an inquiry into whether um, the prosecutor, Alvin Bragg, is doing a political, this is a political investigation. And Alvin Bragg sent a letter back, his office Mm. sent a letter back today, basically saying, that's against state law. You have no jurisdiction over what we're doing. Tell us how you're seeing everything.
6: Yeah, it's also against the Constitution. I mean, but at the same time, look, I, I just want to be really clear. I think Bragg's, if the publicly reported theory that he is working on where he's bootstrapping Basically, uh, uh, out-of-date laws that have passed the uh, statute of limitations and tying it in a new way to a federal case that has never been done before. It is outrageous what he's doing, and it's very political. And anyone who says that he's not being political it has a very steep hill to climb with me. That said, that doesn't give permission for the House Republicans to essentially threaten a, an officer of the court and a district attorney in, a, in an area that they do not have jurisdiction for something that we don't know what the theory is yet. I mean, he literally hasn't charged anybody yet. And to say, if you do this, you're going to be penalized and all that, it is also, it is grotesquely against the nature of the rule of law. It is, they're getting out of their lane. When, when Rand Paul says, you know, he should be in jail and then asks, well, on, for what crime? And he just says, I refer you to the Talmud of my tweet. Um, it's, it's really kind of pathetic and theatrical. <laughs> Um, I've, As a Talmudic scholar <laughs> I was a personal yeah. offense to that. I didn't mean to eat out of your food bowl. <laughs> I apologize. But um, it's 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 an example of how this uh, tit-for-tat logic that has overtaken Washington and our politics brings out the worst in
2: all of
1: the actors. John, final thoughts?
2: Well, I do not think Alvin Briggs being political at all, but I agree. I think the case would be very ill-advised. I think both... I think. Uh, Robert Costello's testimony probably gave them pause and they're trying to regroup and there are much better cases to bring than this contrived case, but I think they're in good faith. They're not political. But you know, if you do a thorough investigation and you do not prosecute, you have not failed. But a couple you've, of things. You've done justice.
1: Yep, quickly.
3: The first thing is that there's always going to be contrary evidence. I have not tried a case in 20 years where there's not evidence that's in controversy. The issue about someone coming and saying that I have other information, Michael Cohen told me differently, that shouldn't give anyone pause. That's what trials are about. They're about making factual distinctions. M- moreover, in climbing your steep hill, Jonah, uh, the reality is, is that I've had clients prosecuted for far less. At what point is there accountability for everyone? And can every Everyone trusts the system that works for everyone. The fact is, is that mm-hmm. it has to be such a difficult case. It should be an A felony. It should be a B. It should be a C. It should be a D. At what point should the what president about be of
1: it date?
6: Outdated- it should be expired Look, by the statute I, of limitations. Well, and, I, I
3: don't and you mean, shouldn't have
6: a DA who campaigned on prosec- and bragging about prosecuting Trump carrying the first indictment of a former president?
3: Look, the reality is, is that if the president, if, if the president has violated any laws, we have a process. I'm an alumni of that office. That process is to bring it before a grand jury. That grand jury makes an assessment as to A, is there reasonable cause to believe a crime was committed? And B, did the subject, Mr. Trump, committed. And if they don't believe that, don't indict. But if you do believe it, have it go to trial and have reasonable-minded people of 12 reach a consensus or not that there's criminality. The president does Deserves, like everyone else and every client I sit next to in court to have his day in court and to really be evenly applied the law I think
6: it. that's all very reasonable. I also think that Mel- that, that Alvin Bragg has prosecutor- prosecutorial discretion, and this was not the case to bring um, if you want to have the first prosecution of a former president. But and but look, uh, I take a backseat to nobody in my criticism of Donald Trump, <laughs> and I think he's guilty of all of
5: this. So,
6: like, I'm not trying to defend but, Donald but, Trump, but, 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 like, the law... The rule of no. law should actually matter, particularly for people who are in charge. And of
1: in fairness, it. Alvin Bragg has not brought that case yet. Yeah. So we, right. we wait to see what happens. Uh, John, Sall, thank you very much. Really appreciate your input here. Uh, we need to move on because when we come back, a father whose 17 year old son was shot to death at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School was pinned to the floor and arrested today while protesting at the Capitol. Manuel and Patricia Oliver, the parents of Joaquin Oliver, are here to explain next.
5: I, oh, what, what, ma'am? Ma'am? Okay. All
6: right. Officer,
5: uh, she goes. She sh- goes
7: please go. remove that woman, please. Yes, officer,
6: please. You're removed. You're, you're breaching protocol and disorder in the committee room.
8: You took my son away from me, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to listen to your absurd
9: voice. No. Yes, um, yes. Officer. Why don't you remove her?
6: And remove <laughs> gentleman too. The the committee welcomes the public to this meeting. We have people on both sides of the aisle. We have people on both sides of the aisle.
4: We are using our first
8: amendment.
4: This
8: is our first first amendment. We have the right to.
1: Those are the parents of Parkland shooting victim Joaquin Oliver at a congressional hearing on gun rights today. Capitol Police, as you could see, pinned Joaquin's father, Manuel Oliver, to the ground and arrested him outside of the hearing room while his wife and a crowd looked on. Manuel and Patricia Oliver, join me now. They're also the co-founders of the gun safety nonprofit Change the Ref. Guys, thank you so much for being here. Manuel, what was happening there? What were we seeing?
7: Uh, Well, you see me getting arrested and um, bought... Worse than that is that uh, we we were seeing how how this side of the hearing was just telling us lie after lie after lie. Um, I think that the story is not about me getting arrested. Um, it's more about Patricia representing all mothers that have suffered them losing their son or daughters. Uh, she was right there. Um, putting her voice very loud so these liars will know where we are and, and what we stand for. Patricia, we lost our son, yeah. and that should be uh, addressed in some way.
1: Uh, Patricia, what was it that you were hoping to accomplish? What were the lies? Were you trying to combat some
8: information? What were you trying to do in that hearing room? Really what I was trying to do in the hearing room is to listen to them. Mm. So we were just, they were just discussing about remove the ATF office, because they don't consider that this is an office that it has to be working and doing something that is really needed today, which is gun violence that is happening every single moment of the day, every day. And when I was listening to them over and over, going through issues that weren't related to the main reason we were on the hearing, I just lost it, and I got to say to the Speaker to the leader, speaker there, that I lost my son because of them. Because the way to see them, the view that they have about gun violence is totally different. Is away from reality.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Manuel, they say uh, that you were being, you were both being disruptive, um, and you know that 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 can't stand in the uh, hearing room. Was there a better way to have a discussion with lawmakers?
7: Well, you know what? I'm, I'm ready to have a discussion at any time. I, I wasn't there uh, planning to do this like someone called me narcissist today. I'm not enjoying this. I mean, uh, some of these guys were moving from one room to the other uh, while they were debating the, the dangerous uh, actions that the ATF has and on ongoing ownership and Second Amendment. They were also debating about banning TikTok because it damages our kids' brains. I don't have to remind people that the autopsy of my son revealed that his brain exploded. They found pieces of Joaquin's brain around Joaquin's body. So no one is banning assault weapons as of today. The reason that why we were there was to represent all parents. We were not planning to do this, but I will not tolerate any more lies from these people. And I really hope that people will realize that they have to get involved like we got involved.
1: At one point, the chairman, um, one of the chairman of this, Pat Fallon, uh, likened the outburst to January 6th. So let me just play you that exchange.
6: Is this an insurrection? So will they be held to the same? Uh, I don't want another January 6th, do we? Yeah, if they're There's trying Moscow. to
10: overthrow the government, they ought to be held to the same standard. But I think they're trying to express Oh uh, uh, Whoa, whoa, whoa,
6: whoa. Member's out of line. Does the Capitol Police not do their jobs?
1: What the hell's going on? What are your thoughts on that?
7: (laughs) Well, this guy is making a joke about this. Really? The chairman in this session is joking about what's happening, comparing what I did with the insurrection? Honestly, you're doing that? Showing the whole country what your opinion is? How How your thoughts, your process of thinking works? Shame on you. Shame on you. That's what I think.
8: Patricia? It's very cynical. I was outside. Meanwhile, they were arresting Manuel. And I was just saying to the security guys that they were very rude at that point that we were just using our First Amendment. And that's what I did when I was inside the room. I was the one who would stand up and say what I said to... To this speaker, I don't want to even say his name. He doesn't. He, he he's not worth to be named. And I think that they just act the way they are acting because they want to grab attention, and that's so bad. So we are playing here to get attention in any at any price. So why you don't do your job and say what you have to do and what you have to say and move forward with the laws that we need to get done? Instead of being complaining about and joking about what happened on January 6th that was very sick. And everybody's still working on that and punish people because of that.
1: Yeah. Well, we know that you two are still fighting for this cause and that you're still trying to act as your son Joaquin's voice. And we really appreciate you being here and sharing what happened today with us.
7: Thank you. No, thank you.
1: Take take care. You too. I'll be right back with my panel. A Michigan appeals court ruling that the parents of the Oxford High School shooter must stand trial. Jennifer and James Crumbly's son, Ethan, killed four students at his school in 2021. Holding his parents partly responsible would be a precedent-setting case. The pair is facing four counts of involuntary manslaughter. Their son pleaded guilty in October and could be facing life in prison without the chance of parole. I'm back with my panel. Uh, Juliette? Yeah. Your thoughts? Uh, I like this case. I, You know, obviously it's
4: troublesome in the sense, are you opening up a Pandora's box? Any of us who are parents, you know, your your kids at some stage do take responsibility for their actions. So I just want to put this in perspective. This is a unique case because these are uniquely horrible parents. And uh, and if you just look at it that way, then I, then it starts to make sense. They 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 give him first of all, they give him the gun. I mean, you know, let's just start there. They know his mental state. He's essentially I'm not defending him, begging for help. He is telling uh, teachers. Teachers are then telling the parents about what's going on. Uh, When uh, he's caught at one stage, the mother sort of gives a wink, nod kind of emoji and says... I'm not mad at you, just don't get caught next time so so these are parents who are somewhat colluding. There's a line in the in the court uh, here uh, the court decision saying that they can go forward, and I think it's helpful putting this in perspective. They said the parents also provided him with the weapon he used to kill the victims. And that their actions and inactions were inexact. Oh, my God. I told you I was going to screw they it up. <laughs> Thank you.
1: <laughs> He's translating, which he I appreciate. Nice
4: I just learned English. And with their son's actions. In other words, it was what they did um, that that helped him do it. It wasn't just bad parenting. Yeah. I think um, so we go with there's it. There's
5: really reasonable concern that, like, Every parent could possibly be responsible for yeah. something horrible their son did, and I think it's really important to bring out that nuance that this was something. And again, they're being they're being uh, charged with uh, with manslaughter, and this is basically a negligent standard. Yeah. Was it negligent to just ignore all of these warnings? Uh, I think we have the the, the, the so called math worksheet where their son drew, took up a, a math worksheet and drew these horrible uh,
1: a gun, and he says things like. My life is useless. He says the world is dead. He shows a gun. He shows a body bleeding. And that uh, was, I assume some point. Well, I think that might have been the morning of the of,
4: that's shooting. When the, that's when the teachers yeah. call the parents. They then come into the class. They come to the school. They insist that he stay in the classroom and in, in the school. They also either know or should have had reason to believe that the gun is missing. It's, it's, it's there. So that's exactly right. It is this conduct, which, let's remember, resulted in four dead children. So it wasn't just that they were bad parents. Is, is, it's a new kind of case. I would not bring it often, but every once in a while the
1: facts fit the uniqueness of the case. On the flip side, one of the things that they, that was presented, one of the bits of evidence that was presented was his journal. And so today they said that part of the reason the parents should have known what was going on was because, here's the evidence, um, every one of the 21 pages in his journal of written material had reference to plans to commit a school shooting. In one entry, for example, Ethan wrote... I will cause the biggest school shooting in Michigan's history, and I will kill everyone, I-F-ing-C. Ethan Crumbly also described a specific plan, explaining the first victim has to be a pretty girl with a future so she can suffer like me. But are we expected to know what's in all of our children's journals? Well,
6: I don't think—I've never looked in my daughter's journal. You're not supposed to look in your kids' journals— but if you've got a kid who's got serious mental health issues and proclivity to violence, some of those privacy rules start go by the wayside. The way I look at this, I, my instinctive thing is that it's really hard cases make bad law. Like, but I agree with you, these are uniquely craptacular parents. <laughs> that said, um, the way I think about it is, OK, what if it's not the parents? What if it is the, the, the dean of students or the dorm master at a boarding school and it was this foreseeable. You knew this was happening, and you gave the kid a gun. Yeah. Like, obviously, that person would be charged with something right. and sued. And we can get into an argument about whether they're overcharged or undercharged. I don't know from the law. But um, so the idea that just because they're the parents and they actually knew more and were more responsible, they should get a pass, that doesn't work for me. So I'm, it, it's icky, but I'm, I'm in yeah.
3: favor of it. Yeah. Good for the prosecutor in Michigan for moving forward. Why? I think that certainly parents shouldn't be held accountable for what their children do unless there are always exceptions. Unless you're on notice, put the journal to the side for one moment and you don't look through your daughter's journal and you give your children the privacy they deserve. But you do know that your son has mental maladies. And you're aware of that. You're on notice of that. You purchase a weapon and you don't secure that weapon in a way that it is separate and apart. And there is no way that your child is getting a hold of that. Then your child gets a hold of it with you knowing what the capabilities, the mental proclivities of your child are. Going back to what Juliet said, right? Now, that day in school, you're told to take your child out when he's doing things like we just saw. And you say nothing to see here, I'm not taking him anywhere. The fact is, is that when you look at someone dying, it's not only the misconception that some have that you have to have intent. It is this other thing. And it's just this egregious, reckless, careless, irresponsible behavior. So if you're going to be this irresponsible, then you need to deal with the consequences. Last point, And that is this. Every case turns on its facts. And if there are facts that are comparable in the next case charge, in the next case charge, in the next case charge, it's not a matter of using it sparingly. It's a matter of using prosecution appropriately when the facts call for it. In this case, they do.
1: And by the way, I mean, all this will come out in trial. That's allegedly they knew about all these warning signs, and there appears to be evidence that they did, but that's what is going to happen in trial.
5: Should I make sure not to leave yeah. one item on the table, yeah. which is which is about the storage uh, and the lack of... They, they didn't secure this gun. So Michigan, uh, the legislature passed a Safe Storage Act. Pretty reasonable. You have to store your gun properly, and you, you can't... You, you ha- you know, you can't let like, your kid get to it. The Michigan GOP responded with Holocaust Nazi analogies. Uh, the Michigan GOP Twitter account, I've me, tweeted out a, a, an incredibly anti-Semitic analogy uh, that said before they collected all these wedding rings, they collected mm. all the guns. In, a, in, or, in other words, analogizing any uh, gun control to Nazi Germany. And they doubled down when called on this and then went further, uh, saying that these, this policy was like slavery and like the Japanese internment and Native American massacres. And I think it's important that we're not we don't only focus on these two parents, but this is an outrageously irresponsible response and an anti-Semitic response, which we also see, by the way, in a previous segment around the Trump cases where Soros, 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 this kind of anti-Semitic gun uh, dog whistle is tweeted out again and again and again. And it's really disappointing that even a a safe storage bill, which is pretty reasonable and has widespread public support, garners this extremist rhetoric from the official Twitter account
3: of the Michigan GOP.
1: Thank you for making that point.
3: Amen to that.
5: I
1: really appreciate that. Yes, well stated. All right, everyone stick around. A Texas university cancels a drag show for an unusual reason. That's next. That was RuPaul's Drag Show, just for a little mid-show entertainment for everyone.
5: You know, I've mean, been trying to get my friends to watch the show, and now, finally, they will. <laughs> yeah. That's what it takes. Just get some RuPaul in there.
1: There you go. Thanks. I'm we so finally. what am I doing, doing it here? Yeah, exactly. we finally <laughs> spiced it up. Well, the president of West Texas A&M University canceling a student drag show that was set for next Friday. It was a fundraiser for the Trevor Project, which is a suicide prevention organization for LGBTQ young people. And in an email to the university community, the president, Walter Wendell, writes... Drag shows stereotype women in cartoon-like extremes for the amusement of others and discriminate against womanhood. Drag shows are uh, derisive, divisive, and demoralizing, misogyny, no matter the stated intent. End quote. He goes on to compare drag to blackface, saying, quote, As a university president, I would not support blackface performances on our campuses, even if told the performance is a form of free speech or intended as humor. It is wrong. I'm back with my panel. This is interesting to me. This is an interesting analogy that I had never thought of. So, um, Juliet, your thoughts. I'm a woman. Yes, I'm yes. not
4: offended by drag. No, I uh
1: But wait a minute, you're not of all, offended by drag. Let me just say no, 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 is it? But isn't it doesn't it stereotype women in a cartoon-like extreme?
4: Yeah, I mean, you're going to cancel a performative a well-known performative a uh, uh, concert because you've read something that says some woman it de- denigrates woman as if drag was not also an expression by the LGBTQ community of being able to express the gender. Uh, the lack of gender binariness, right, that things are fluid. So you're not going to really win this one. I mean, in other words, if you're the president of the university, and it just felt like he read some article, like you were saying that he read some article and was like, oh, I'm going to be clever, right, that I'm going to be, and, it's, and, and, uh, and so, but I want to talk about the blackface thing. It is not like blackface, right? It is absolutely not like, the reason why, I mean, the history of blackface is that, uh, African American actors would not get hired often. It was either a, making fun of the color, or they wouldn't get hired. So, if you wanted to have someone, uh, an African American uh, role or character, you would put the actor in blackface. So, it's 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 apples and oranges, uh, and it's it's it, it 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 makes a very complicated issue about gender and yeah. uh, uh, seem so simplistic. And that's what's sort of frustrating about of apples it.
5: Apples and bicycles. Yeah, I feel like, like, it's like it's an it's not even incredibly exactly. offensive. Uh, I mean, he wanted to like double up on his homophobia yeah, by like needling exactly. on some racism <laughs> exactly. as well and like that wasn't exactly. enough. I feel like people like this need to just meet the people who yeah. they're stigmatizing all yeah. the time. You know, we've seen all this like wave of anti-trans legislation. Have these people ever met someone trans? Yeah. I mean, I have trans friends. Like if you spend a few minutes with the trans person or in this case with the drag queen or with whatever group you want to stereotype and stigmatize and say stupid stuff about, you know, on the internet, you wouldn't have these stupid ideas.
6: Yeah, yeah I, I, I don't want to be the skunk of the modern party. Go right ahead. <laughs> I, I, like, I, first of all, I have, I have no problem with a private university or even a public university saying that certain things are inappropriate mm-hmm. and they can be wrong and that's fine. You can have arguments about it. I certainly agree that drag shows have a long history and to all of a sudden be as freaked out by them yeah. is a little weird. That said, um, I have trans friends. Like one of the biggest intellectual influences... On it, on my life is is Deirdre McCloskey, who's a brilliant economist, um, and she is trans. I do think there is something fundamentally weird that says you have to show your solidarity and your appreciation for serious for for serious people who happen to be trans by being really into and indulging in what are essentially uh, transgender strip shows. And um, like, if you had ever said something about the, you, you don't understand gay people unless you go to a gay strip mm. show. People would look at you like you're crazy.
1: Is somebody saying that, or are people just saying they enjoy? Oh,
6: drag if you follow shows? on Twitter, if you if you could, I guarantee you by the end of tonight, me saying even this much, I will be attacked by people. You don't understand what what drag shows really are about, and they're wonderful. And why can't kids go to them and all that kind of stuff? I think it is it is a more complicated thing than simply rank bigotry to say you have a problem with with drag shows in certain contexts than a lot of people. Um, who are on the other side of it want it to be. It oh, was, wait a minute,
1: John, I, mean, yeah, hold on. I, I think uh, I get yeah, to hold, win uh, in
6: terms of person on the panel who's been to the most drag
1: shows. I don't know about that.
5: I mean, <laughs> I've I, been I to a lot. Alaska, <laughs> th- I, named herself. I, I feel like, you know, I've probably been to, I don't know, several hundred, maybe a thousand. Okay, you win. I have not seen, <laughs> okay, okay, do people don't take their clothes off. The whole point is to wear the look and look really good. Yeah, there's a couple where I guess, you know, you might take off a layer and end up in like a sort of a bikini or something. like that. These aren't strip shows. That's uh, not what this is about.
3: I and that's also not the complaint, I see this in a far more simplistic way. I look at universities, colleges, community colleges. I was at a college today speaking to young people. Go Gutman Community College. Keep going, kids. (laughs) The reality is is that these are laboratories of learning. And I think if if, if young adults want to be expressive and they want to engage in certain behavior... How dare the president or anybody else suggest what's appropriate and what's not appropriate? It's how about job. our young adults? How about our young adults be allowed to express themselves and not have you express for them and be opinionated in that regard? I
6: think that's ridiculous. Furthermore, well, wait, listen, that's okay. Culture, you can think it's, like, no, it's, like no, I'm uh, defending institutions that are supposed to mold character and actually train people towards but, something. But, but it's the it, kids like it, now. On on a it's an educate part but, of the educational but, process who, to protest but, and to express yourself and not actually to absorb. Who were you? or, or anyone
3: else to suggest and judge what's appropriate and what's inappropriate, who is the president anyone? of the university? The president is. of That's the job. university has students there, so one thing because you're the president, you say is wrong. The next thing you say is right. Isn't this a democracy? No. What, so when does Universities it? Universities are not point? democracies. No. The students don't get to vote on the curriculum. The, they 20 20. do. They <laughs> get. They get to <laughs> they vote should. on. They get to vote on their development. They get to vote on who they're going to give money to. They get to vote on the fact that the proceeds from this were going to mental health issues yep. relating to those who were LGBT and had these mental health maladies. Okay. And I think students should be students, be expressive, and college Joey, universities what, what, shouldn't what, what tell them what
1: thing. to do. What about the, the blackface analogy?
3: I, I think it's preposterous. Okay. I think it's absolutely ridiculous to make that comparison. And enough said in that regard. And because the president believes it's comparable to blackface, it makes him right, and students get out of here, I just don't think that you should have, as a laboratory of learning, where children, young adults are developing and growing, I don't think there should be censorship, and I don't think there should be distinctions between what's appropriate, what's inappropriate, what you can do, what you won't do, what you should do, which it's ridiculous. I think professors
6: are allowed to decide what's appropriate for their class and their syllabi, right? I I think presidents are allowed to decide... What is appropriate? Yeah. And they can be fired if they make stupid decisions. That's fine. But this idea that it's a let a thousand flowers boom and whatever floats your boat and students just get to say, yeah. I'm going to say, express myself however I want, is how you get things like you just had at Stanford Law School, where you have wildly inappropriate reactions that are training kids to think that somehow constraints on yeah. their, their id... Are somehow inherently illegitimate, and I think it's a terrible way to educate. Well,
4: them. I, I, I never yeah, want to very fully quickly, agree very with quickly. Jonah, just uh, but uh, I think <laughs> Jonah's right in the yeah. sense that I mean, I teach at a university uh, that that there is standard setting. Here's what the yeah. problem with this case is: it was a stupid standard. Like I mean, it was just absolutely a preposterous notion to think that you're going to ban drag and and he should be fired or or, or change his mind or whatever but the idea that a that a, a president or a university professor doesn't have some standard setting for a university is just a—it's—it's it's, it's actually kind of dangerous. But who oh,
3: gets to it. determine okay. what the oh, standard guys. is? It, it, the board of trustees appoints the president. But I, 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 yes, but, but the president is not a dictator. Okay. They're the president of the university, <laughs> right. and well, there are various
5: students <laughs> who want to note, be expressive. Guys, hold first on, conservative
3: hold to defend it. cancel culture.
1: <laughs> <at national> <laughs> <television>. <laughs> I'm Glad to see that we can just ban any speakers. Guys, we'll take it up in the commercial break. I love like oh my gosh, I've obviously lost control. Wow, I told them to talk and mix it up, but they're really doing it. All right, guys, hold on. I just want to correct something that was in one of our banners just now. The university we've been discussing is West Texas A&M, university not Texas A&M. And we'll be right back. You have breaking news right now. The Pentagon says a U.S. contractor was killed in Syria after a drone strike. Five U.S. service members and an additional U.S. contractor were wounded in this strike. And the United States is taking action. CNN Pentagon correspondent Oren Lieberman joins us on the phone now. Oren, what do we know?
9: Allison, this all played out Thursday afternoon, Syria time earlier today. So this would have been early this morning here U.S. time. And according to the Pentagon... A one-way UAV, essentially a suicide drone, attacked the position with U.S. forces and U.S. contractors early this morning our time. In that attack, according to the Pentagon, one U.S. contractor was killed, five U.S. service members, and another contractor were wounded in the drone strike. Two of those service members were treated on site, while the others, that is, the other three service members and the U.S. contractor, were medically evacuated to medical facilities in Iraq. So fairly serious injuries, at least there and, of course, the one U.S. contractor killed, according to the Pentagon. In response, the U.S. carried out what it called a precision strike against Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps positions uh, in response in eastern Syria to that drone attack. And I'll read a statement here from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin. As President Biden has made clear, we will take all necessary measures to defend our people and will always respond at a time and place of our choosing. No group will strike our troops with impunity. To give you a sense of the U.S. presence in Syria, There are about 900 U.S. troops or so uh, uh, spread across uh, a small number of facilities in eastern and northeastern Syria. In terms of the threat they face, according to General Carrillo, the commander of U.S. Central Command, there have been about 78 drone attacks against U.S. forces since the beginning of 2021. Allison, that's about one UAV attack every 10 days or so against uh, U.S. forces there. Of course, this is one of the more tragic in terms of the result.
1: Those are staggering numbers. Uh, Oren, thank you very much for this breaking news and your reporting. Keep us posted on what happens tonight. Uh, Meanwhile, deep fake images are spreading online of Donald Trump being arrested. But that's not true. Despite how real they look, that did not happen. So how are we supposed to tell reality from fiction? Some suggestions next. Fake photos of Donald Trump being arrested have been flooding the Internet this week. We, of course, normally focus on information, not misinformation, but we're going to show you these photos to highlight the danger of fake AI-generated pictures. This is misinformation on steroids, basically. Here is an example. This is an AI-generated photo of Donald Trump. We've put the word fake over it, so it's clear that it's not real and it can't be reproduced, but perhaps you can see just behind the K there, it is Donald Trump running away from police, This was created by a man named Elliot Higgins. He's the founder of the investigative group Bellingcat, after Donald Trump said falsely that he'd be arrested on Tuesday. Um, We'll show you more of these in a second. But let's bring in our panel. We have Juliette Kayyem, CNN national security analyst, Gideon Litchfield of Wired, Jessica Washington from The Root, and political commentator Evan Siegfried. Guys, great to have you. I think these deep fakes are terrifying. I think they're terrifying. I think that when I saw these, I know they're fake. They have fake written all over them. But still, I had a visceral reaction to seeing them. There's something about seeing a former president. Let me put up another one. Here's another one. This is a, this one is about Donald Trump. It shows him in the middle of a police... Fake Donald Trump, of course. The middle of a police scrum. He's falling to the ground. And, and Gideon, just seeing a former president... In this situation, I, I sort of viscerally felt sick, and I know it's fake.
11: Yeah, well, this is you know this is the latest issue of Midjourney, which is one of these AI image generators, Midjourney five, and it is just leaps and bounds better than the ones that we have been seeing before. And so, even though there are lots of ways in which, if you look closely, you can spot that these images are fake, it's still the, you know the training on Trump's face, the AI does that well enough, and the expressions and the positions that. It, it crosses that uncanny valley for us and it makes us think, my God, maybe this could be real. And it, it provokes that reaction that is meant to provoke.
1: And here's one to prove your point of how if you look closely, you can tell that it's fake. Let's look at this one. This is, um, again, fake Donald Trump surrounded by police. Mm-hmm. And the only giveaway that something is awry, if you look closely, is you can see that Trump's white shirt sleeve is visible up to his shoulder on his right arm, mm-hmm. despite him wearing a Navy suit. So that's a giveaway... But I, again, I just think, uh, Juliet, that yeah. deep fakes are the apocalypse. I mean, they, they. This is we. We spend so much time trying to combat misinformation, yeah. and then here are visuals that can trick all of our brains. I, what are we supposed to do about this? Well, one
4: way is that we're going to have to train ourselves to be more discerning about that visceral reaction. So. Um, How? What, well, we'll learn over time. Look, the, the AI, this whole system is relatively new. We sh- I, I, don't count the human species out yet. Don't worry. You know, we still we still we still got game. And so what we're trying to what we should be figuring out is ways in which we can teach ourselves to to discern that, not have the visceral reaction. But you you can't believe that 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 the computers get to adapt all the time, And that we're just sort of stuck here not being able to respond to it. So there's going to be ways in which we're going to also be able to learn. And eventually we'll see where it ends up. So, you seem skeptical for humankind, I, but I, yeah.
11: I, I, think, I, I still, I, I think still
4: have, I hope we have game.
11: I think it's asking a lot of human beings. I mean, yeah. yes, we can, we can, you know, we could talk about the ways in which you can spot the, that these images are fake. But the point is... We are now having to, we're now in the stage where we're going to have to treat every single image we see online as suspicious. That is a lot of work. Oh, I know. And there are things that I think companies could be doing, like the social media companies, for example. There are tools that they could choose to use to flag it in advance to people. This image is suspected of being fake. But right now, I don't see them signs of them doing that.
1: Good. I want to talk about those in a second. Uh but Jessica what's your what's your thought about where we are with deep fakes? I mean as, you know, a reporter, how are we supposed to be combating misinformation when let's remember, I mean January 6th was caused by misinformation by p- people believing fake news basically. And so here we are, at just another I think level of that.
12: Yeah. I mean, we're going to have to work overtime. I mean, obviously, social media is a good strategy to have them be partners in this. But this is terrifying. We obviously have a society that's really susceptible to misinformation. Like you said, January 6th, I mean, QAnon, the kinds of theories that people are willing to believe and buy into based off of really limited information. And then when you see these images and you add that in, that's terrifying. And as journalists, it's our job to continue to hammer this home that these aren't real, that you have to be extra careful. But we don't have as much trust as we used to have. So I think I think this is a really dangerous place to be in.
1: Evan, optimistic or pessimistic?
10: Well, I'm optimistic in humanity, but <laughs> pessimistic in social media companies actually yeah, wanting yeah. to be able to do this. Let's say, you know, there was a picture that Trump posted on Truth Social tonight of him praying. He's kneeling down. Yes. It's clearly a deep fake and everybody knows it. But, you know, it still drives engagement. I sent, made a deep fake the other week of Mike Tyson winning a spelling bee. And I sent it to my friends and it went up like wildfire. People are going to be entertained, and social media companies have a... They want to get profit and engagement, not necessarily correcting misinformation. But what really worries me now, it's not pictures, it's deep fake videos where they have voices. What if they have a deep fake of Jay Powell saying the banking system's about to collapse? Yeah. What happens on Wall Street? What happens to on Main Street?
4: Yeah. Okay. I mean, look at SVB. I mean, it's, a, you know, the, the rumor mill, the uh, Silicon Valley Bank, the rumor mill creates a perception... That it's falling apart. Everyone pulls their their pulls their money, uh, and uh, and uh, you know, it, yeah, and if you so- had had time, it, there's no reason that this bank, as compared to any other bank, should have had the troubles it had. But it was part of that was that inability to just sort of take a deep breath and think, okay, what in fact is reality here, and what is just the. The panic, or the, or, or everything else out in social right. media. Right, and it's
11: already trivial to make an audio, a fake audio of say Jamie Dimon talking to yeah. one of his associates on the phone, saying, "Listen, J.P. Morgan's in much worse shape than we yeah. thought because of SVB." And you know, in the few minutes that it would take for that to be discovered as a fake once it would post it online, you could you could launch half a financial. And imagine crash. when a
10: state actor decides to weaponize that.
1: Right. Okay, so I mean, we're, <clears throat> I, are we just around the corner from that? And what? is the answer. How are we supposed to be training ourselves to spot
11: this? So let's, let's start with how we train ourselves, because, yes, I think that's... We right now, humans, are the first line of defense. So let's look at these so pictures. Humans. You know, uh, number one, if you look at these pictures of Trump, Trump Trump's face himself is pretty, it's pretty well done because there are lots of images of Trump on the Internet. But if you look to the edges of the picture, look away from the center, that's where you start to see more of the faces distorted. You see a police officer who looks like he has rocks in his mouth instead of teeth, Um, Another thing to look for, look at text. These images don't do text very well yet. So if you look at these guys' badges, the policemen's badges, um, there's not real text there. It's garbled. It doesn't even look like English. it these, these images are now doing things like limbs and hands much better, but they still make mistakes, like fingers look crooked. Mm-hmm. In one of the pictures, I think Trump has three legs. People are in distorted, a funny giveaway. positions. Yeah. That's kind, <laughs> of a, kind of a giveaway, um, you know. And then uh, another thing that's actually useful is if you see a sequence of images, look for details that are inconsistent. So in some of these pictures, Trump, on all of them, Trump is wearing a tie. And I think in each one, the tie is a different color.
1: That's interesting, Mm -hmm. but are we just around the corner from them perfecting some of those quirks? I think
11: it will get a lot better very fast, and we're going to see, you know, as you said, we're going to see video right now. Fake video is pretty grainy, but, you know, a year or two from now, it could be pretty convincing.
1: Now, do you still have faith in humanity? Still have faith in humanity
4: that we will adapt, and uh, as well, we will learn to be more discerning. The the market will change because of this. Uh, We will um, be able to discern between... uh, uh, fakes that don't matter and fakes that do matter. So your, your thing about Mike Tyson sounds funny. I don't really, it's not going to bring down humanity. So but
10: we, we do have historical comparison for this. Orson Welles's broadcast of War of the Worlds, yeah. and that freaked people out, but we did adapt.
1: Mm -hmm. Thank you all very much. I don't know if I feel better or worse, but we want to get (laughs) back right now to our breaking news tonight. The Pentagon says that a U.S. contractor was killed in Syria after a drone strike. Five U.S. service members and an additional U.S. contractor were wounded in this strike. The United States is now taking action. CNN Pentagon correspondent Oren Lieberman joins us on the phone. Okay, so Oren, uh, Oren, give us an update now.
9: So this all played out Thursday afternoon Syria time, which would be early Thursday morning, when the Pentagon says um, uh, a drone, a one-way UAV, which is another term for a suicide drone, attacked the U.S. position near Haseka, Syria, and that's far northeast Syria. In that drone attack, as you pointed out, one U.S. contractor was killed, according to the Pentagon. Five U.S. service members and another contractor were also wounded in that attack. In terms of how they're doing at this point, the Pentagon says two of those— uh, service members were treated on site, while three and the U.S. contractor had to be evacuated to medical facilities in Iraq for treatment. So those injuries, it's possible, may be substantial at this point. The Pentagon says the drone is of Iranian origin, which, which suggests it would likely be an Iranian proxy or, or uh, an Iranian-backed uh, Shia militia in the region, which carried out this sort of attack. And we've seen that in the past. In response to the attack, the U.S. carried out what it called a precision strike against Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps or groups affiliated with the IRGC. In a short statement from Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, he said, the United States took proportionate and deliberate action intended to limit the risk of escalation and minimize casualties. We're still waiting for what's called a battle damage assessment. So to find out If there were uh, those suspected of perhaps launching this attack or affiliated with this attack killed in the U.S. response, that's information we're still looking for at this point. But we've seen attacks on U.S. forces often in the form of rockets, uh, perhaps a little less often in the form of drones. But this is one of the more dangerous, deadly, tragic in terms of the results of the attack on U.S. positions in Syria, Alison.
1: Warren, how many troops does the U.S. have in Syria?
9: The U.S. has about 900 troops in Syria as part of the campaign to defeat ISIS. In, in far northeast Syria, they work with Kurdish partners uh, as part of that campaign. And they come under attack perhaps more often than we would think. In fact, earlier today, uh, General Eric uh, Carilla, the commander of U.S. Central Command, said since the beginning of 2021, so U.S. forces in the Middle East have come under attack from Iranian proxies and drones 78 times, if you do the math there, that averages out to about one attack every 10 days or so. And that doesn't include the rocket attacks. We saw one of those just a couple of weeks ago. And in fact, the top U.S. general, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, was in Syria earlier this month visiting U.S. troops. And one of the questions on his mind was force protection. So you can see the Pentagon still very much concerned about this with Iranian proxies in the region who have fired and continue to fire on U.S. forces there.
1: Okay, Warren, come back to us with any developments, please. Thank you for the reporting. Of course. All right. Next, we're going to tell you what happened when the pilot of a Southwest Airlines flight was suddenly incapacitated and who came to the rescue. Scary moments for passengers aboard a Southwest flight yesterday when the captain became incapacitated and needed medical attention. But an off-duty pilot from another airline who was a passenger stepped up and went to the flight deck and then helped the co-pilot land the jet successfully. My panel is here waiting to talk about this, but let's first get more on the story from aviation correspondent Pete Muntean.
13: The scene on board the Boeing 737 sounds like something out of a movie. An off-duty pilot in the passenger cabin swooping into the flight deck after one of the original pilots fell ill.
0: The captain became incapacitated while en route. He's in the back of the aircraft right now with the flight attendants.
13: Southwest Airlines says the incident started on flight 6013 from Las Vegas to Columbus, Ohio. Flight tracking data shows 27 minutes into the flight, at 37,000 feet, the flight started to turn back for Las Vegas. Southwest says that's when one of the pilots needed medical attention, and a credentialed pilot from another airline entered the flight deck and assisted with radio communication.
0: We need to get him on an ambulance immediately. a modern aircraft, a single pilot can fly it and handle communications, but it's a very heavy workload.
13: Off-duty pilots being pressed into service has been the subject of fiction.
1: By the way, is there anyone on board who knows how to fly a plane? Yes!
13: And fact. What well, was the situation with the pilot? He is incoherent. here so he is out. Just last year, a passenger without piloting experience landed a charter flight from the Bahamas with help from air traffic controllers when the lone pilot became incapacitated. In 1989, an off-duty United pilot volunteered to help wrestle United Flight 232 into Sioux City, Iowa when a major mechanical issue was more than the crew could handle. In this latest incident, the flight made a safe landing back in Las Vegas, but the helpful pilot's identity remains a mystery.
0: That he was willing to step in and did a good job is is really uh, quite commendable.
13: The nature of the Southwest pilot's medical issue is still not clear. Experts tell us having two pilots is best, even though a 737 can be flown by one pilot. There is a push to get rid of the second pilot. It would be a cost-cutting move by airlines. The largest union of pilots puts it like this, the choice is between saving money or, like in this case, saving lives. Pete Muntean, CNN, Washington.
1: All right, thanks to Pete. And we are back with the panel. I don't think they should get rid of that co-pilot on flights, Evan.
10: No, not one bit. If anything, I'd add a third, just in case. <laughs> <we> <laughs> can see. Look, I'm not terrified of flying. I'm terrified of the sudden cessation of flight. And <laughs> I, I, the airlines wanting to cut costs by yeah. removing a second pilot is one of the most boneheaded things yeah. you could ever have happen. Health emergencies do happen to people. You can't predict it, like what happened with this pilot. And what would have happened if this uh, pilot who were a passenger weren't there? We don't know.
12: Yeah, I do not want them to get rid of that. I want backup, 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 right. backup pilots. I mean if something's on redundancy. Exactly if something like this were to happen and I was in the air, I would just don't tell me. Let me leave my headphones in. So please you don't, don't want alert the
1: announcement, me. is there a pilot on board or
4: anyone on <laughs> the
12: <that would be laughs> I'm not religious, but I'm praying. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, I want multiple backup pilots. Please do not save me any money or more likely the airline any money by getting rid of the safety measures like an
1: extra pilot. You know, it's not not just that we're covering these things more often. Things are, are happening yeah, more often. And today, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg talked about that. So it's not just that we're aware of it. He said that, for instance, there are there have been more near misses this year. Let me play him for a second.
5: We think that the uptick is partly related to the exceptionally fast surge in demand and the swift return to the skies, faster than even the most optimistic scenarios that we heard a couple of years ago. We need to make sure, sure of course, that as that system comes back to that high level of demand, there is no negative safety impact to
11: that.
1: Says basically the near collisions are occurring at double the rate of last yes.
11: year. Yeah, and we also have the shortage of pilots that the airlines are still yeah. recovering from post pandemic, when you know they have retired some people, laid some people off to save costs. So they're still scrambling to recruit more people so that there are enough. So it's kind of not surprising that all of these these incidents are stacking up on each other.
4: Yeah, I mean it's the the transportation system. So we, like you know I I, I um, the the near misses we should not view as near misses. They are flashing red lights, telling us that the system is under stress, whether it's because of pilots or too many flights in the air, or as even uh, uh, the transportation secretary has said, uh, going back through your protocols. There's Lots of these pilots did not fly a lot for two years, so we're we're sort of re-gearing up. Uh, But that would mean, of course, that when we study security systems or safety systems you, you want to avoid the single point of failure right if you got one pilot you got one single point of failure and so it's just the most ridiculous thing to to how much does it cost to have a second co-pilot on it to 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 make any movement to not have a redundancy it's on the one thing it's hard to imagine that they even thinking about it it's, it's hard to imagine that they you know would some of these planes it. are you know well some of them as we as we've been reporting can be flown by themselves but it is it is it's the most absurd um, action to take because the, the, it's an on off switch. If, if the plane doesn't fly, it's very unlikely people sur- survive it, uh, or that you would have the luck of having a passenger who, who has a pilot's license. So this, but I, but the bigger issue is the system. The system is telling us something from these near misses. And it's good that we are now starting to pay attention. These are not like, oh, thank goodness that didn't happen. This is, the system's under stress. I'd be willing to sacrifice the
1: disgusting blankets, the pillows, (laughs) whatever can save the money. (laughs) Two two inches off the (laughs) leg room. Yeah, whatever, whatever it takes. More pilots left. Yeah, (laughs) thank you all very much. Okay, stand by. Is the clock ticking for TikTok in the US? The CEO is grilled by Congress today. We're gonna hear from a TikTok creator Next.
14: Today I'm meeting the president of the United States of America. (laughs) I don't think I had said it out loud until like just right now, but I am terrified. What do I say? Maybe I'll ask him to tell me a government secret, but I don't want to get kicked out of the White House.
1: An exciting moment for TikTok influencer Maddie Westbrook. Maddie and other TikTokers were invited to the White House last year, but now, just months later, the White House is threatening to ban TikTok unless the app's Chinese owners agree to spin off their share of the platform. And Maddie Westbrook joins me now. Maddie, uh, great to have you here. What do you think of the idea that TikTok could be banned in the U.S.?
14: Yeah, I think it's a really quick turnaround from being so openly welcomed into the White House and having a great conversation with Joe Biden himself about the impact that social media can have and the positivity that it can spread across the entire nation. But it, it does feel a bit like whiplash, and it is kind of very back and forth on whether or not it's, you know, I, again, I'm not, I'm not any type of national security expert. I'm not any type of data privacy expert. But at the end of the day, you know, it connects us all. And It can be used for such positive impact and such such positive waves and motions throughout, you know, political agendas as well as social issues. So it's 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 a very, very interesting concept to me that is very, very uh, it's, it's trying.
1: But do you understand the downside of TikTok, the dangerous side?
14: You know, I've been trying to educate myself a little bit on the downside of that. And again, I'm no national security expert. I'm not aware of. A lot of what what could be happening on the on the data privacy side, but at the same time, you know, I think it's something that we have never really seen before. The massive expansion of uh, social media throughout the pandemic, I think, it was something that connected us all. And I, I do see, like, in a personal sense, the the privacy and security issues there. I mean, you can tag your location; that's a very scary thing. And I'm going to be completely transparent, in thinking. That's something we should fix. I mean, you know, youth being able to go onto the app and and spread their location is a very scary thing. And that's just one example of privacy that is extremely concerning. But at the same time, you know, I think the positives outweigh the detriments in every single way.
1: And does it give you pause that it's owned by, you know, a Chinese, by Chinese owners?
14: Absolutely. I mean, we don't know what it's used for. I mean, Mm -hmm. I don't know where my dad is going a lot of the time. But at the same time, you know, if that's sold to an American company, I think there are massive strides that can be taken to ensure our privacy and our data security.
1: Um, also, one of the things that came up is they said that um, within basically, I don't know if it's seconds or minutes of using it, the algorithms, you know, funnel sometimes dangerous content to, as you know, young women get Content on body image stuff or anorexia. There's content that people see that they didn't ask for about suicide. What about things like that?
14: You know, I think it's very interesting. I was talking about this earlier with my friends today. That's a threat on any platform. I think TikTok's algorithm is just extremely specific just because of the way that we utilize it every single day. I mean, it's the first place I go to every single morning, it's the first place I go to before bed every single night. And I think it's created such a personal profile on every single person that has interacted with the app, period. And that algorithm, it can be dangerous. But it's not to say that that algorithm that's created across all social media platforms can be dangerous on every single one. I think it's a very interesting target that TikTok itself, rather than, you know, let's say YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat, those algorithms can also be extremely specific. And TikTok itself, I think, is just used as like the prime example, rather than speaking on the algorithms as an entire whole. You know, I watched the, the social project on, on Netflix about how that algorithm can be, you know, created to work kind of against mental health. And I would agree in some sense, but at the same time, it's, it's a conversation that needs to be held across all platforms, not just TikTok.
1: And Maddie, when you say it's the first thing you check in the morning, and then uh, before you go to bed, <laughs> what do you, what are you looking for? What do you see first thing in the morning?
14: I think at this point, as well, full transparency, it's a habit. It's not something I'm particularly looking for. I think I'm looking for something new every single day. I'm looking for something exciting. I'm looking for something I've never seen before. And, you know, I don't think our brains are particularly programmed to wake up and watch, you know, a happy puppy video. And then, like you said, a video on anorexia and then maybe a video on suicide. I don't think our brains are programmed to intake that information as quickly as we do intake it on a daily basis. Um, But I think our brains have been programmed to require that natural dopamine hit every single day i, I it, it doesn't even feel like uh, a, a thought or a choice it's just there and that's something that it's obviously my job so it's also a little bit you know back and forth it's like all right what can i work with today what's trending right now that i have to work with as like a job i also view it as like a, all right let's get started let's log into my work email and see what's up
1: it's really interesting so if you could talk to president biden right now what would you say well as he considers banning it Right.
14: I think I would remind him of the positive impact that we came in as a group. I went in with, I think, around eight or nine amazing other creators. And we went in and we promoted the vaccine, also something I'm very, very positively, you know, supporting throughout time. And I was a part of the Made to Save vaccine campaign that generated over 90 million views. So I would just kind of reiterate the positive impact that it can have because he's obviously quite aware of the positive social impact and political impact that that TikTok can have. With its graders, period. I mean, he brought us in for a very specific reason. And I think being utilized a little bit as like a positive change, I think he should be reminded of that. Mm-hmm.
1: Manny Westbrook, really great to talk to you tonight. Thanks so much for giving us your perspective. Really interesting.
14: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me.
1: My panel is back now. That was helpful. That yeah. was really helpful because I think that, you know, TikTok to so many of us, um, in a certain generation, uh, seems, seems, <laughs> seems like, what's the, the point? But Maddie spelled it out pretty well. But yet, as a national security right. expert, what do you think? Uh, so I was
4: hoping that there would be less drastic solutions to this. It's clear that the Biden White House wanted that. They've been trying to work through some rules and regulations about the cloud about access, about where data is is um, stored, uh, but the politics of this are just um, not really about TikTok anymore. They are about China and and technology, and them banning some of our uh, technology. And it's it, and so in some ways, it's sort of not about the content. It's about a company that has access to 100 million Americans and their data. Those Americans know it. We're not surprised. We know, I mean, by now we know who owns uh, TikTok. And so that's the, I think, I think whatever my opinion is, I think this is where it's heading. Uh, And it's important for people to remember the tremendous influence people like Maddie did have on something like uh, the vaccine. I mean, in other words, you know, we all talk about Fauci. Fauci was irrelevant to a lot of people who were looking on TikTok, looking to the Maddies and others of the world and saying, okay, now, you know, th- that's, that's the person I'm going to follow.
11: Yeah. And I think Maddie's also absolutely right that um, a, a lot of the issues that are being raised about TikTok are the same for any other platform. There, It's not that there are not legitimate questions about how TikTok uses data. It's certainly true. It seems, according to reporting, that its staff, its staff in China, by dance, can have some access to the TikTok data. But, you know, I would say two things. Number one, the same issues of potentially harmful content, mm-hmm. political manipulation, mental health, um, and data privacy or data lack of privacy in general are happening across all of the but platforms. But doesn't the
1: Chinese ownership add mm-hmm. a new level?
11: It adds a little bit of a new level, but not as much as I think people are making out. Because uh, number...
1: I ha- Go
10: ahead. I have- oh, have- oh, right. Well, it- let me finish. and then sure. you,
11: So I think... First of all, if China wants to get data on American citizens, there are lots of ways it can get it other than TikTok. There are lots of apps that are putting out data that can be freely bought and sold. Third-party data brokers will sell that data to anybody who wants it. There are also ways that apps, even if TikTok, the app itself, were banned, um, there are lots of apps that send data to TikTok for purposes of online advertising and things like that. So I think simply banning the app would not really solve these, these concerns about China having access to well, data.
10: first of all, we saw today on Capitol Hill, TikTok's CEO go and give a masterclass in what not to do in front of Congress, because mm-hmm. he flubbed it left and right. One of the things he kept on pushing was, oh, we're a private company. In China, there's no such thing as a private mm-hmm, company. Sure. The Chinese government can have access to it, particularly through their intelligence services, at any point. And what we also saw today was how close they are to China. Mm-hmm. They were repeatedly asked, can you say that the Uyghur genocide is happening. Right. And they say, oh, I'm not an expert. They hemmed and hawed. I mean, and they tr- then tried to compare themselves to other platforms, like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Look, Elon Musk is a lot of things. But the last time I checked, he has not been participating in any sort of concentration camps or genocide of another group. And lastly, the thing that really scared me today was the answer when he, uh, the CEO was asked, have you used TikTok to spy on Americans? Mm-hmm. You know what he said? I wouldn't call it spying.
11: <laughs> and would, would Facebook call it spying, what they do? Well, Facebook doesn't have a direct relationship like, with the Chinese yeah. uh, intelligence Hold services. On. Well,
12: one, thing, one point I would make is that <clears> Facebook... <throat> did have, does have connections to genocides that have occurred. I mean, and also January 6th, we know that was fomented on Facebook. So there's a ton of dangerous things that have happened on social media platforms that exist in the United States that are owned by U.S. companies. So it does seem like part of what's happening here is a fear over China that is very political and not necessarily, I'm not saying entirely separate from some real concerns, but not necessarily grounded in those concerns, grounded maybe more so in kind of politics and politicking. You know, I also grew up with Instagram and Facebook, And I can say those were very harmful to Mm -hmm. mental health. I mean, to my mental health, to a lot of people's mental health. I think internal studies of Instagram have shown that one in three teenage girls who went on Instagram had worse body images. Mm -hmm. It's been shown to increase depression, anxiety, all these different mental health issues. What was your experience? I mean, my experience was it's a lot to try and keep up with your peers on Facebook, on Instagram, to have to post photos from parties or look a certain way or feel a certain way. And I actually think with TikTok, there's less of that pressure. It does feel a lot more real than some Mm -hmm. of the platforms that I Grew up with as a teenager, so I do see something with TikTok that is slightly different than maybe other people see who didn't grow up with Instagram and Facebook. But
10: we have to also acknowledge there's no way that they can sell it off. The Chinese government no, right. has veto power over it.
4: This is happening. I mean, I, I think wh- whether the whether the specific whether it should happen because we have all these other variables to consider, or whether it's just like other social media, it's happening. The politics have now aligned that for 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 a variety of reasons, including let's just be clear, like. Other social media companies lobbying for TikTok to be banned in the United States because of the competition. We it is it is going to happen. And so we have to then prepare for, OK, well, what other platform may take you're sure it space? is going to be banned? The politics are. Less, uh, uh, foreign policy, diplomatic decisions are often made based on a threat and a lot of other stuff. And that and and for whatever reason, the bullseye has landed on TikTok of all the issues that we have with China. Am I up late at night about TikTok? No, I am not up late at night. I'm a national security person. I do not worry a lot about TikTok. But for, I, you know, for a variety of reasons, the uh, Democrats and Republicans and the White House has now conceded after two years of, I think, trying to keep this at bay, is at least willing to now more consider uh, a potential ban. And Congress most recently gave them the, the authority to do it. So it just seems like, you know, no one's going to stop this train. That's
11: Yes, it felt assessment. like the hearings today were a kind of a show trial. of the CEO Yeah, of the yeah d- and they were basically preparing the public. Yeah, there was no, there wasn't the like,
4: there, yeah, there was no like, oh, I'm learning something new. It was, yes. it was, this is, this
1: is my moment to get yeah. the, the, the clip. Okay, everyone, stay with me, if you would, on a lighter note. Hollywood besties Ben Affleck and Matt Damon shared a lot more than an Oscar.
11: Way out
10: of here. I want to way out of here for. I mean, I'm gonna live here the rest of my life. You know, be neighbors. You know, we'll have little kids and take them a little league together up Foley Field.
11: Look, you're my best friend, so don't take this the wrong way. 20 years, if you're still living here, coming over to my house to watch the Patriots game, still working construction, I'll f- kill you. That's
10: not a threat. Right. That's a fact.
1: That's awesome. Hearing their old Boston accents there. I need subtitles now. <laughs> I, think, I was like, what are they saying? <laughs> um, I don't even know if they were acting. That was Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, one of Hollywood's favorite power couples. Of course, I mean best friends. But how close are they really? Well... It turns out that they shared a bank account at the beginning of their careers.
11: Been charge. so used
10: to having a shared bank account from high school that, like, I remember You're a shared we, bank account in high school. Yeah, 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 we had a Bay Banks account that we shared, which we used. I love the checkbook. I found the check. Did you really? Yeah. It was unusual, but it was also like we we needed the money for for auditions, you for trips to, New, to York. New York. So that's what the money was for. It was like you were allowed to go to New York with the money. You could go to the account. We were allowed to take out ten bucks and get quarters and go to a thousand and one and play video games. That was another use of the money we were allowed. And uh, and eventually, you know, we we were allowed to try to buy beer, like you right. know, which never f- worked. <laughs>
6: but and like- that's how we went broke with that account.
1: <laughs> I'm back with my panel, uh, Jessica. That's interesting. I've never actually never heard of best friends sharing a bank account. I
12: haven't either. But I kind of think it's great. I think a lot of people that I'm talking to now, they're talking about the ways in which, you know, community looks different, family looks different. And why should people in romantic relationships be the only one to benefit from having a dual income? You know, people are buying homes with other single mothers together with their best friends. I see no problem with this. And would you do it? I don't think my best friend would do it with me. <laughs> and
1: because you would use all the money for beer or what? Or maybe sushi. <laughs> oh, you know, $20 cocktails in New York. I don't know. That that can drain a bank account. It might. might. Uh, yes, Evan.
10: I see it as a very risky thing that can ruin a friendship, actually. Mm-hmm. Because it, clearly Matt Damon and Ben Affleck had ground rules and they thought it out. But I don't think a lot of people will think it through and they'll just say, okay, let's just throw our money into this account and we can use it for, for this. And then there's going to be some day where they say, why are you using more of the money than I am? Where's the fairness? Or why are you spending it on this? And it's going to be the same old argument. So why have some sort of trap where your friendship can be ruined, where you can actually just... Think it out and say, hey, let's go take a trip together. We each need to save up X amount of money.
11: Or, yes, or yes. you could treat it as a learning experience. This is a great way to learn about how to have accountability and manage a friendship well together. Sure, I never, ever shared a bank account with anyone, not even with my first boyfriend. But, you know, I think this, you know, maybe this is a thing that people need to learn to do. And it's, it's, it's a communication style, uh, communication teaching tool. I, I think it's a good idea.
1: Doesn't it have a big downside, though? Yes. Which is? It could squander all your money.
11: Well, that is what you learn to communicate about.
1: (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Julia. I love the reference
4: to Bay Bank, which was like this old school bank, which is now defunct. So it reminded me of of when I was in college. But um, I guess my only addition is that I think it shows why they are both so successful that at that age they were thinking about pooled money to go to rehearsals. I mean, at 16, 17, I mean, what were... You know, I don't even think I had a bank account at that age. So, uh, to me, it was... uh, They were pretty smart, pretty young. This is no fluke how they're sustaining power over the years.
1: Yes. And it's also fun to remember that they were broke... Yeah. ...and that they were best friends. Yeah. And, you know, they had this hard... Not hard scrabble uh, past, but they certainly didn't... It wasn't handed to them. It's fun to hear about that. This would... uh, My friends would have gotten such a raw end of the deal if I had shared a bank account with them. I mean, I just I was always broke and I would have and I needed, you know, gas money and money for food. And I would have just helped myself. Thank goodness they didn't let me have part of their bank account. I remember going to my bank in college and being upset that the ATM wouldn't give me less than five dollars. That was the lowest you could take out. And I was like, I'm going to squander that. I need just one dollar from my bank. Yeah.
4: So. And now we have Venmo, so It makes it way too easy to pass
1: around money. Pass around money. Yeah. yeah Dangerous. Yeah. Yes. All right. So uh, good for those guys. All right. Mm-hmm. We will be right back. Before we go, a couple of programming notes. Tomorrow on CNN this morning, Jake Tapper talks about his interview with the star of Ted Lasso, Jason Sudeikis the phenomenon of the show, and the cast's visit to the White House. Tune in for that at 8 a.m. Eastern right here on CNN. Then you can catch Jake on the lead at 4 p.m. And his special with Jason Sudeikis at 9 p.m. Then this weekend, actress and activist Eva Longoria is proud of her Mexican roots and deeply connected to the country she calls her second home. Now in the new CNN original series, Searching for Mexico, Longoria is taking us on a journey across the country to see how its people, culture, landscape, and history have shaped its diverse cuisine. Here's a preview.
4: I don't know the secret to happiness. All I know is every time I eat Mexican food, I'm happy. (laughs) I'm
1: Eva Longoria, born
4: and bred in Texas with Mexican-American roots. I'm going to get a T-shirt that says, More Salsa! I'm exploring Mexico to see how the people, their lands, and their past have shaped a culinary tradition as diverse as its 32 states. We're here. Today we are going to be making our food pilgrimage. Look at that. I don't know if I've ever been this excited to eat anything. ¿Y cómo hago? Corto como. Tal cual. I was going to do this, that's why. (laughs) Pues también puede ser. The people here are so secure in who they are and where they come from. Eres un artista. You guys are amazing storytellers. Appreciate it. Mexico is going through a major makeover to emerge as one of the world's
2: greatest food destinations. You know what brings people to Mexico? The food culture. I fell in love with it.
1: ¡Que viva México!
2: Eva Longoria, Searching for Mexico.
0: Premieres Sunday at 10 on CNN.